1: Tuesday, February the 13th, and your Ben Jarofsky Show starts now. On today's show, senior reporter from Injustice Watch and Benny's buddy, Maya Duke Massimo. The Ben Jarofsky Show, a presentation of the Chicago Reader. Chicagoreader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago. If you want to know what to do, where to go, What to eat, what to drink, what's happening in art, in politics in the city of Chicago? Well, you should head to chicagoreader.com because there's all that and a ton more. And if you want more Ben Jarofsky, just head to chicagoreader.com forward slash Jarofsky. I'll spell it for you. That's J-O-R-A, V as in victory, S-K-Y.
0: Hello again, everybody. Ben jarofsky here. We're calling this a Wink Wink Tuesday. And here's why my old friend Maya Duke is joining us. Uh what a great day in the Ben jarofsky show. Maya and Ben are back. They're back, back together. Before I bring Maya on, I have to tell a few things on my mind. Um, it was it's so, so coincidental. So Maya, of course is an investigative reporter for Injustice Watch, and she probably knows more about judges in Cook County and the state of Illinois than anybody not named Tony Prugwinkle. And so we're going to be talking judges with Maya. But, like, judges are in the news today. Two cases of corruption. Oh, what a city. What a st- What a world. What a world, to quote the Wicked Witch. Uh, what a world. A busy day. The Bright One uh, chronicles... Uh, one a corrupt official was sentenced and another uh, was convicted. Uh, Tim Mapes, Michael Madigan's former uh, right-hand man in the state legislature, chief of staff, was given a two-and-a-half-year sentence on the same day that uh, former state senator, Annisette Collins uh, was convicted uh, for, what is she convicted for? Uh, Officially, she was convicted of filing false individual tax returns for the year 2014 to 15. Wow. Uh, And uh, she'll be sentenced at another time. Uh, And uh, Tim Mapes, here's now, this is a, This is one of those things where do as I say, not as I do, uh, living representation of that. So follow me on this. Uh, So Tim Mapes was officially, I'll read you the lead in the bright one, uh, John Seidel, federal courts reporter. Even after he sentenced Michael Madigan's longtime chief of staff Monday to two and a half years in prison for lying to a grand jury as the federal noose tightened around his former boss, a frustrated judge told Tim Mapes, quote, I don't know why you did what you did. Uh, and then the judge went on to say, perhaps this was out of some sense of loyalty, but if that's the case, your loyalty was gravely misguided. Whatever compulsion you felt to protect Michael McClain and the former Speaker of the House, Michael Madigan, as far as I can tell, was not reciprocated in any way. End of quote. Oh, man, that's like uh, like, so... Would have been okay to do it if it was reciprocated? Interesting turn of words by the judge there. Uh, If uh, Madigan had reciprocated, as the judge said, to use the judge's word by giving, I don't know, I'm just making this up, Mapes, a car, a 1965 Mustang, uh, Maya's favorite car. If he had a convertible, only a convertible for Maya. Uh, If the judge had reciprocated, uh, excuse me, if Madigan had reciprocated in that way, would that have made it understandable that he lied? Uh, interesting choice of words. But here's the thing. So essentially, uh, Mapes uh, lied to uh, the prosecutors in order to protect Madigan. And so now the judge uh, in this case, a federal judge is acting as, oh, this is an outrage, you can't believe it. But society definitely sends mixed messages on this matter of telling the truth to protect another politician Uh, or lying uh, to protect uh, another politician. And that is generally, that is called snitching or ratting and is viewed with utter contempt by people uh, in Illinois and in Chicago in particular. And to cite one source, uh, one example that is always on my mind, uh, in the case of Ed Burke, uh, who uh, was just convicted himself of corruption He was brought down by another alderman, Danny Solis, who was wearing a wire to gather the goods uh, on Burke for the feds so they could eventually prosecute Burke. And Burke's words, as recorded by Danny Solis, were used against Burke. Uh, So when this all broke into the papers, what did the uh, alderman, the fellow Burke and Solis alderman, how did they react? Did they praise and thank Danny Solis? for standing up and doing the right thing and refusing to allow uh, corruption to continue? Uh, Or did they defend Ed Burke? Duh! They ripped Danny Solis. They essentially called him a rat. And then when Ed Burke finally left the city council, finally left the city council, uh, they gave him a standing ovation. So this federal judge is like, Surprised? that the first instinct of a politician in Illinois or a political in Illinois is to defend his boss? That's like the code of conduct in this state, in this city. We dislike rats and we love, what? Well, I don't know what, we love corruption. I don't know what else to say, we love corruption. If we didn't love it, why'd they give uh, Ed Burke a standing ovation, huh? You answer that question, judge, federal judge. Anybody in the city? By the way, it's not just Chicago. There was a commercial in the Super Bowl where Vince Vaughn—oh, well, it was a dumb commercial—but anyway, at one point, Vince Vaughn uh, is talking to a woman who, an actress who's allegedly Tom Brady's. You remember this babysitter? And she says to Vince Vaughn, uh, uh, "She says Vince Vaughn, you know, uh, Tommy was a bad boy. I could tell you about that." And, and Vince Vaughn says, "Keep it to yourself. Nobody likes snitches." So yes, that was a national commercial in the Super Bowl. Nobody likes snitches. And but wink wink, but we're doing the right thing. We uh out act outraged that someone didn't snitch. All right. Without further ado, Maya Duke Masapa will you join us, join us right now. Welcome back, Maya. Good to see you.
2: Good to see you as always, Ben.
0: Tell me, tell, tell me how much you miss me. We haven't done a first Tuesday since December, Maya. It's now February. Uh we put our show on hiatus. I, I, I frame it that way uh, with the idea that someday we may return. I'll come to Maya and go, Maya, we got to do this show. And Maya will go, Ben, I'm so busy. Okay, for you.
2: Yeah, I uh, I don't know how I'm surviving without you, man.
0: Uh, I'm just trying to think, like, in, when, when the first Tuesday in February came around, did you have, like, this instinct? I did. I'm going to tell you that straight up, Maya. I was like, oh, God, am I forgetting? <laughs> it's like I have these dreams of, like, Putting those shows together. Did I call? did I finalize that guest or did I not confirm the guest? Did we send out the invites? How many tickets have we sold? Maya, Maya.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm uh, I'm enjoying a slightly less full plate these days.
0: So uh, you're pretty busy, though. And in Justice Watch already pointed out uh, that you're an ace reporter there, investigative journalist. And you have two stories in the latest issue, or at least the one latest issue that I saw, and they have to do with uh, the selection of judges, which has become like your area of expertise. This is a fascinating discourse about how our system really does work, how our judges uh, get appointed, how, how they uh, hold on to power. And the connection between the Cook County Judiciary, uh, the local Democratic Party, the Democratic Party Chieftain uh, Tony Preckwinkle, and the Supreme Court, the members of the Supreme Court themselves. Uh, it's a it's a just it's very revealing a couple of stories uh, that you wrote. So well done, good job. Why don't we start with this lead and then you weigh in on it? Um, and I'm going to read this uh, this lead to where I have. okay, here we go. This is the lead for Maya stories this is well done quote. The March primary election will be another record-breakingly uncompetitive one uh, for seats on the Cook County Circuit Court, with 62 candidates running for 40 vacant seats in the court, more than a third unopposed in countywide and sub-circuit races. Uh, So I think the statistics that broke down, there's like one and a half candidates per vacancy, which that... I love that statistic. You got to have two candidates, ladies and gentlemen. I know this is, you know, I went to Evanston High School and took algebra, so uh, I'm very good at math. But you need two candidates in a race, all right, to have a competitive race. One and a half means you're not having competitive races. What's going on, Maya?
2: Yeah, so this uh, this comes on the off the back of the last election cycle, uh, which was 2022, where... I had done a story back then about how uncompetitive that election was because there were two and a half candidates per race uh, in the judicial election um, on the judicial part of the ballot in 2022. And back then, people blamed mostly the uh, strangely shifted election schedule, which was, you know, we had the primary in June instead of March because it took so long to get the census data and to finish all the remapping and all of that. So... There were all kinds of like uh, weird, unusual things going on uh, in 2022, and COVID was still a big thing, and people had to gather petition signatures in the in the dead of winter. So uh, everyone was talking, you know, all throughout the summer about how this was going to be, uh, you know, an incredibly exciting uh, election season. That there were so many, so there were so many vacancies. There were going to be so many candidates running. Um, And then when the filings all came in, we were shocked to see that this was even less competitive than the last time around, even though, um, you know, the schedule has kind of shifted back to the normal March, primary, November election. So I started asking around, talking to people who are in the know in the political realm, people who, you know, political consultants who specialize in judicial elections, people at the Cook County Democratic Party to candidates, um, uh, and the picture that emerged was that it's it was sort of a coalition of different factors um, coming into play. And some of those things are basically that, uh, you know, it's very expensive to run. It's more expensive than ever to run. Um, you know, people who are trying to get on the ballot for any elected office, um, very few candidates actually, you know huff it themselves and collect those signature petition signatures uh, themselves. Um, you know, people rely on family and friends to do it. But for the most part, it's pretty common that people will pay someone to, um, to collect the signatures for them. And uh, the sort of reputable uh, outfits that are reliable with getting good signatures for candidates, they're now charging more than ever for, for that work. Um, you know, inflation and everything else uh, is going, prices are going up for everything, including for this. Um, the other factors uh, were a little bit um, more interesting, I thought, which was that there were the, the people that were running for the countywide judicial seats that were backed by the Democratic Party uh, have are are being described by some as like this, you know, the most incredible slate the party has ever done. One of the candidates calls it the platinum slate. <laughs> um, it's, uh, you know, the part. The Tony Preckwinkle told uh, told me and my colleague Dan Hinkle, who who also uh, helped report the story, that you know she'd like to think so few people are running because people think that it's not worth their time or effort to run against the party because the party's candidates are so good. Mm-hmm. Um, but the final factor uh, that uh, that 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 took a lot of digging to really figure out was the effect, the confusion caused by the remapping of the judicial subcircuits. Um, so, for the first time since the, since 1990, we have a, a whole new map for judicial subcircuits. A couple of years ago, the state legislature um, redrew the subcircuits and added five subcircuits to Cook County. So instead of 15, we now have 20. And uh, there was a lot of confusion about the maps, and there there was a lot of confusion about which open judicial seats were available in which subcircuits. And it wasn't until very, very close to the start of the petition gathering time that all of this was finally cleared up by the state Supreme Court and the State Board of Elections and the Cook County Clerk and so the expert opinions i got were was basically that by the time things became clear uh a, lo- a lot of people just they weren't there wasn't enough time for a lot of people to kind of get their act together and start a campaign um and the thing about the petition gathering is that you know that it starts on september 5th and you really have to use the full period um people don't really have uh a whole ton of time to collect them and it takes a lot of work. So um, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the perspectives I got were that basically, you know, too few people knew about which sub-circuits were uh, in play, which vacant seats were in play. And, um, and uh, it was just too late for them to organize a campaign. And then the last, the last reason that people gave was that people just aren't excited about politics right now. Um, It's a really, wet paper bag of an election year. Um, it's uh, it's a dispiriting time in politics. And um, the experts told me that it does have an effect on, on, on the ballot at every level, that in, in, in election years where the up ballot races are really exciting and energizing to people, you see more people running for this stuff lower down on the ballot.
0: Wow, let's pause and think about that. Uh, I happen to believe this is a significant crossroads in the experiment known as democracy in America uh, with Donald Trump, who attempted a coup, uh, probably going to be uh, the candidate on the ballot. And uh, and yet it's a dispiriting time. I guess it's you could argue many with things here. It's dispiriting because a guy who attempted a coup is on the ballot uh, and his opponent, the incumbent, is like 2,000 years old. Uh, that's an exaggeration. And um, so, yes, I can see why that could contribute to uh, a certain what? Just lack of enthusiasm, though you would think defending the country against uh, a guy who tried to uh, have a coup would might be energizing to some, but apparently I'm wrong on that one. So a very dispiriting time uh, for Chicago. guy. The other thing, so many, like the obstacles in front of being a judge five. I read this in your story. I'm quoting this to you, $5 a signature to get on the ballot. So, uh, we had a hideout show about this. I don't know if you remember this one or were we on the road? No, we were still at the hideout uh, before we left the hideout, uh, where we talked about getting on the ballot to be a judge. Uh, so how many signatures does it do you need to gather good signatures that, beat any challenge to make the ballot. Do you, do you have even a rough idea of that?
2: Yeah. So in, uh, in the, in a sub circuit, uh, you only need, uh, I believe it was a thousand signatures this year, um, to, uh, to get on the ballot. So it's, uh, about, I think it's 2,500 for a countywide race and it's a 1000 for subcircuit but you know how it is with with politics in cook county when that number is like the minimum number you need for the state board of elections you know for, to to get that's the minimal threshold but any serious candidate is going to be gathering way more signatures than that because what happens next is you have a bunch of challenges and people are going to say, well, this signature doesn't belong to a registered voter, and this person doesn't actually live here, and blah, 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 blah. And so in order to survive those challenges, people really aim to get at least twice the amount of signatures uh, that are the minimum requirement. But the interesting thing about this year is that there weren't even that many challenges. So the people who, um, the, the the races that were contested, uh, hard, there were hardly any challenges filed. and. Several of them, the candidates that were challenged, survived the challenges and are still on the ballot. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of one of the one of the other uh, kind of theories I got about what's happening actually came from uh, Brendan Schiller, who was on your show last week. And uh, his view on this was that it's also we're in a kind of a season and maybe it's a several election cycle season uh, where people now know that if they're going to be running for judge they're going to be scrutinized. We have a much more educated ele- educated electorate when it comes to voting for judges than we did, you know, 10, 20 years ago. Um the bar associations uh, make their evaluations public. We have the Justice Watch voter guide which you know, we sc- carefully scrutinize every candidate and and get information about candidates out there. We have things like Stephanie Score's girl, I guess, progressive voter guide that really puts a lot of pressure on candidates as well. So people are kind of getting hip to judicial elections and they have been over the past several election cycles. And Brendan's opinion was that this can, this, this does um, maybe wean out a lot of candidates who years ago would have been shoo-ins just based on the fact that, I don't know, maybe they worked for the Cook County State Attorney's Office and had an Irish name. But now these kinds of easy... <laughs> Easy pathways, um, especially with the collapse of like the Democratic Party patronage system in the city, um, those kind of easy avenues to becoming a judge uh, have been have been uh, kind of closed off, and uh, we're just uh, in a kind of lull. And Brendan had a pretty optimistic take on it. He thinks that you know, in, in another election cycle or two, we're going to have robust judicial elections again.
0: Yeah, I saw that prediction. Maybe when we have more entertaining uh, uh, top of the ballot elections, I guess trying to defend democracy from a guy who had a coup is not exciting enough for voters. Uh, and uh, but I, I, I got a big kick out of Brendan's quotes. The man has a way with words. He went on this one riff uh, that you quoted. You quoted him on, and I sent it to him. I go, "Good, good job, young man." Uh, and it was something about um, the uh, people. <laughs> Dumbasses who somehow – dumbass precinct captains uh, who somehow managed to get through law school were the ones that the, the party slated to run for judge, uh, classic Brendan Schiller. Uh, and um, I feel that Injustice Watch has, has a huge contribution uh, to this. And I'm not s- just saying this because I'm looking at you right now. But, um, I mean, it's no joke, ladies and gentlemen, Injustice Watch, Guide to the Judges, there's really – no way they could duck and dodge in the past a judicial election was so complicated to understand first of all it's really complicated to understand like how judges are selected how you vote like associate judge versus judge judge uh you're voting to retain as opposed to voting an election it's a it's very confusing across the board even to the experts okay uh and in the old days uh, Maya, what what the Sun Times would do? the The Bright One did this, and I think even the Tribunal did it as well. Uh, they would print all the recommendations uh, that uh, the various rating groups have made uh, for each individual judge. In Justice Watch, takes a deeper dive. Like you guys go into, like, okay, Billy Bob is a personal injury lawyer. The biggest Casey ever won was he got a million dollars i'm making all this stuff up million dollars when he sued the uh, uh acme chemical company et cetera, and so forth and so like if you have a bias against personal injury lawyers you're gonna vote no if you like personal injury orders you're gonna vote for her. i mean it's I, I think it's there is a point there that there's a valid point that a more sophisticated and intelligent electorate uh, deters people from voting for judge. I'm not quite, I'm not sure if that's healthy or unhealthy. Your thoughts.
2: Uh, having a more sophisticated electorate.
0: Yeah. Or having fewer uh, people running for uh judge.
2: Yeah, so, uh, you know, a lot of people thought, kind of reflected on this being as a problem, you know, it's bad for democracy to have less competitive elections. And sure enough, you know, you look back, I, just for my own uh, kind of, out of my own curiosity, I looked back at some um, newspaper archive, you know, uh, basically from like the early 90s, because like, when newspapers would just, you know, when they print the, the whole entire sample ballot for the democratic and, and, and the Republican primary and stuff. And I look back at some of those elections in the early nineties and, you know, some of these, basically it was like six person races for every judicial seat on the ballot. Uh, now the most competitive race we have, uh, in, in this primary is a four person race and yeah, huge number of uncontested races and a bunch of them just have two people running. So it's, um, I don't know, you know, my question was definitely like, are we, you know, as a community, as a society, are we worse off if there are fewer choices, but the people we're choosing from, like there's fewer duds among them? Like if people are generally better qualified and experienced and have the kind of temperament and, you know, diversity of their backgrounds that... Um, as a community, people would want on the you know it, to be inside their courts. Like, are are we really worse off uh, from having less choice? Um, it seems like most people I talked to really did identify this as a problem. But I, you know, I think your average voter might be relieved that there are fewer people to stick through.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, if if all the choices you have are bad, then having more choices. It's not a great thing if you get what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, and, and what
2: if? But uh, what if all the choices you have are good? That's well, there, <laughs> that's yeah, the that's, thing. <laughs> and I have to say, like now having gone, this is my second. This is my second election cycle um, working at Injustice Watch, and so you know, I I don't have a ton of uh, history doing this this work, but um, you know, going through these candidates, like yeah, we 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 put we put we scrutinize these people's down to their underwear like if you've ever been sued you know uh i'm not saying we're going dumpster diving to verify people's mailing you know residential addresses but i'm not saying we didn't do it either so so it's uh it's it's uh it's we, we really do uh, strive to be very, very thorough in our backgrounding of people. And every election cycle, we get more thorough. We get, you know, people get, our people on our team get better at this. You know, this this year, our reporting team uh, has basically doubled from from the last time we did this. So we had a lot more brains working on this whole operation. Um, and, uh, you know, just from, from looking at these candidates, uh, compared to the last cycle i guess i don't know there were there were a lot of people with very strong resumes i will say that you know i i i spend a lot of time looking at these people's backgrounds and qualifications so when it comes time for me to vote personally like i already come into it having some knowledge about a lot of them anyway so the, the process is is a little different for me as a as like an individual voter because of this job but in general I, I guess um yeah i i feel like a lot of people really do seem to be like very invested in, in raising the standards of the judiciary in the, we see people that are you know quite involved in their community people not just you know overwhelmingly former prosecutors. I mean, there's still a lot of former prosecutors, but you see a lot of people from a lot of other type of uh, legal backgrounds, people who've been in private practice, but you know, not at like fancy schmancy law firms, but like do, being lawyers in this community. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's, um, I guess I'm, I'd be curious to see where we are in another two, four, six years, and if Brenda's prediction comes true and what what we're going to be seeing out of these if there are more competitive judicial elections coming down the pike um what kind of candidates we're going to be seeing
0: yeah let me go back to the money aspect uh, i didn't finish,
2: mm-hmm.
0: f- finish my advanced mathematics uh and uh so just probably folks i know not everybody could take algebra at emerson high school and be as smart at math as i am uh but if there if you take 2,500 signatures to get on the ballot uh and uh for you want to guarantee that you could beat a um a challenge you get 5,000 signatures at five dollars a signature that's let me do the math $25,000 I believe you can check me on the math ladies and gentlemen that's a lot of money just for signatures then yeah you had this other section in the story where uh if you want a the nod of the Democratic Party, you got to kick in 45 grand, 45 <laughs> Oh Lord, well, wow. but Jacob Kaplan, who you quoted in the story has been on my show to defend that practice. So we'll, we'll leave that alone. Let's just assume that's just the cost of doing business. Uh, and um, so when yeah, the I The way that-, that
2: the party justifies this cost is that, look, we have to do ad buys, we have to print signs, we have to pay our you know, people to collect the signatures. We have to, you know, all of these things cost money and elections are expensive. And so, you know, they're very, they're, they, they don't treat it like some dirty secret. They're very open that like yeah. this is how much it costs. And it's, we think it's reasonable for people to ask to kick that in.
0: Yeah like i said ja- yeah jacob's been on the show and he uh, you just you summarized everything he said when he's on the show defending that but it
2: is but it is a huge amount of money especially yes. when you you know it's it's it may not maybe it's not a lot of money to somebody who's a lawyer but it's uh, it is a lot of money and it does i think sort of uh, underscore how present day electoral politics are really a game for the rich mm-hmm. um I see very, you know, this election cycle, there are very few candidates who are like, so, you know, quote unquote, the little guys. Mm-hmm.
0: So, uh, those two together, the cost, if you want the party's backing, and if you want to get, uh, the signatures you need, it's 70 grand right there. Just, just the basics. Uh, I, and, um. If you don't have, well, if
2: par- you're, if, if you're paying for the party's backing, I think you do save on the, the collection, the signature collection cost. Cause once you're with the party, they make sure that you have the signatures you need. you wow. paying 45 grand goes to your, goes Covered towards that? the cost. Yes. Yeah. I think so. From what I see in the way that these campaign, okay. the, these candidates that are backed by the party, what they're spending on.
0: What a deal. Uh, all right. So, uh, all right, I'll, I'll deduct that. But the point is that it's 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 costly. It's just at the outset. Now you have the decision of, do you want the party's backing enough? And in your article, uh, you quote Jacob, and uh, I believe doing this again from memory, 81%, uh, according to their uh, statistics or their study, of candidates backed by the Democratic Party in Cook County were victorious. Uh, which, I mean, Aside from all the election guides I alluded to, it, it still shows you the power of the Democratic Party's uh, endorsement. So what's your thoughts on uh, that track record? Uh, eighty eighty one percent, I think it is.
2: Yeah, I you know, it's it seems like a very uh, impressive track record. This was the, this was the figure uh for 2022, by the way, the 81 percent, and again, 2022 was also a very uncompetitive election. Um, there were not a ton of they only endorse for countywide seats, so people in they don't spend money and endorse in the judicial sub but for the people running countywide, that everyone in the county sees them on the ballot, that's where the party's endorsement is happening. And last election cycle, uh, there were also maybe one or two of the countywide races had more than two candidates in it. So, you know, it's 81% uh, track record of success in, again, relatively uncompetitive, in a relatively uncompetitive election. But I mean, look, I think, um, I feel like, especially in the journalism establishment in the city, there's this tendency to talk about the party's uh, sway over the electorate like it's some kind of like dark corrupt kind of force that is always operating in some kind of shady manner and we have plenty of uh, given the current convictions and indictments happening in our midst like it's 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 you know I'm not saying that it's it hasn't been that way in the past or it it doesn't stay that way in in, to, to a certain degree but at the end of the day if the party first of all the party is way less powerful than it used to be because of the collapse of the patronage the old you know machine patronage system and second of all like the the population of the county does change does shift and the party has to adapt to that in order to remain successful and remain relevant to people and yeah this is a this is a northern large you know industrialized city in the United States with a large diverse population, like the it is gonna it would be very hard for the Republican Party to make serious inroads here. But the party itself is like a contested ground. So mm-hmm. think about compared to 10 years ago, the kind of people who have like really aren't just like the little insignificant committee men in the party now, but the people like Carlos Rosa and Mike Rodriguez, who are like you know, representatives of like the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, uh, in the city of Chicago, they have a way stronger voice in the party than, let's say, Tony Preckwinkle did in 1996. You know, so it's it's you know, people. I think there's as people become more powerful in any system, as they spend more time in that system, there's a tendency to become. Uh, less nimble and start wheeling and dealing and, you know, the corruption can creep in and people start making making decisions that are easy and not necessarily right. But in general, like what, what I see from just like studying history is that um, the party does adapt to circumstances and uh, it, it seems like not, you know, it's when people don't like what the party offers they run alternative candidates and as those alternative candidates win, even though they're running as Democrats still, um, you know, they gain traction and and a foothold in the party and then influence how the party as an institution operates. So yeah, I, um, I guess all of that to say is that it's, it's uh, the party's backing is still, I think important to people or in any way, it's an important marker for people because some people don't want to vote for people who are backed by the party. So, um, but it, but it is it's an it's it's still an important player, and it does have an effect on these elections.
0: Yeah, uh, and uh, fair enough. Uh, I'll also point out that your stories uh, one uh, article alludes to uh, a former judge uh, Abner Mikva's famous line: uh, "Don't say we don't want nobody that nobody sent." And there's a link uh, to Abner Mikva uh, explaining the back drop to that story. So I urge everybody, well, I urge everybody to read my story, number one. Number two, click on the link. It's very entertaining. Uh, and, um, but that underscores what I'm going to say next. You have a whole, se- a separate story, which is a fascinating uh, look at how the Supremes, as I call them, uh, the, the Supreme Court Justices of Illinois get to uh, select uh, candidates fill vacancies. And uh, their vacancy f- the candidates they uh, a point to fill vacancies uh, have a heads up, uh, an advantage to put it mildly um, uh, in the uh as they run for election. Uh, and there's kind of underscoring the point that Mikva made in the other quote, like it still matters who, you know. To yeah. Uh,
2: yeah. Why don't you riff on that a little bit? Yeah. So this is uh, this. Originally, this was going to be part of the, the 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 main story about why so few few people were running. I mean, one of the reasons that that I got as I was interviewing people is that, well, on top of it being a very diverse slate that the party has has endorsed, so people might look at that and say like, okay, uh, I'm, I don't have much of a chance against these people. They're diverse. They're well qualified. But the third thing that 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 the party slate has working in their favor is that now all of them are already appointed judges. So what happens in Illinois is that if, uh, when a circuit court judge um, retires or resigns or dies or whatever, leaves the bench, until their actual official term is up, the Illinois Supreme Court can appoint someone to temporarily fill that vacancy. So, when somebody is appointed to fill a vacancy, like they become a judge. And so all of these candidates who are now running for their first actual six year term on the bench, they are all getting run, getting to run as judges. And so I tried to basically answer the simple question of like, okay, so how does this appointment process work? Like, how does one get appointed? Because the thing that caught my eye in the beginning was that once I started seeing who were the appointed judges I was like that's interesting all of these people I'm familiar with these names because I've seen them try to run for judge in the past they've come up for the Democratic party slating process they've been slated by the party as alternates sometimes um so like they've been they've been in the mix maybe they've been on a short list for a finalist for an associate judge position so uh, they most of these names were familiar to me and I thought that was kind of um that was interesting. Like how, uh, why is it, what are the chances that the people getting appointed uh, are are people who are already somehow in the mix and it's widely known that they wanna be judges. So uh, I started looking into the process and basically the way it works is that it's it's like nominally the entire Illinois Supreme Court that makes the appointment. But the Cook County, the three justices from Cook County don't meddle in the downstate justices appointments. So when there's a circuit court vacancy somewhere in Southern Illinois, the Cook County justices are not recommending people to be filling that vacancy. It's the justice from the district down there that's gonna be making the recommendation and within and vice versa. And then within Cook County itself, the three justices uh, from, from Cook County who are currently Chief Justice Mary Jane Tice, um, Justice called Neville, and uh, Justice Joy Cunningham, who was a, a temporarily appointed to replace Ann Burke, they take turns to recommend uh, temporary appointments uh, as vacancies come up in Cook County. So each one of the three justices has their own process for vetting people that they will recommend. And basically, almost always... The, once one of the justices makes a recommendation like the rest of the court is gonna sign off on it. I guess it's it's it, it's like it would be like a very unusual thing if the court forpedo somebody's recommendation like somebody would have to have some personal problem with the recommended person. So um so the three justices so I started tracking okay like who are these people that were appointed by each of the three justices like which which person was recommended by which justice and what was the process for, getting a getting you know getting appointed ultimately i talked to the to, to the judges themselves the candidates who have already been appointed you know i talked to uh almost all of them except for uh, i think one or two and i just asked them to describe what the process was like for them and then i asked the justices themselves uh to to share like what what was their uh process like for recommending these appointments and Ben, you would not believe how hard it was to get an answer from the justices (laughs) to this simple question. At one point, my battle for these answers with the spokesperson for the Illinois Supreme Court reached a level where I texted the Chief Justice directly (laughs) to ask her this question. Within like 30 minutes, I'm getting an angry, threatening email from the spokesman telling me that it's like never okay to contact the justices directly and this should, you know, consider this your first and final warning. And I don't know what exactly he was threatening, but it was like such a, such a like, uh, uh, you would think that I was like showing up to their house with a gun, you know? it was uh, where I I was asking, you know, for, for the fucking nuclear codes, you know, it's, it it was all, all I was trying to figure out is like, when you, when you, uh, when you make a recommendation for an appointment, like how do people apply for you to consider them?
0: No, this gets at, okay. So I began uh, with the riff about uh, do what I say. Now what I do, like uh, in the matter of, uh, ratting out or uh, being open about what that, and this gets into another contradiction inherent. you just, and uh, so follow me on this one. So what Injustice Watch has been doing over the last few years, accelerating uh, definitely in, since like, the 2020 cycle, is showing the politics uh, involved in getting elected as a judge. So how our judiciary is immersed the reality is they are immersed in politics and they are very much connected uh, to the Democratic Party. Uh, And if you wanna understand what it takes to be a judge, you have to understand the politics of it all. Uh, That is the reality. The um, Sort of the myth, the fictitious myth is that judges are above politics. They're impartial observers. Uh, and uh, it's just almost so they were brought down by the gods above, and they have no biases, and everything is a fresh slate. We're about to see how BS that is when we watch the Supremes. This is me speaking, not Maya, so don't get mad at her. The Supremes are going to keep Donald Trump on the ballot, the big daddy Supremes, not the baby Supremes in Illinois. The Supreme Court will keep Donnie on the ballot, even though we all saw the coup he attempted uh, his insurrection, we all saw his attempted insurrection because they don't want to kick him off any more than the Illinois Supreme Court didn't want to kick Rahm Emanuel off, even though he was violating the city's residence requirement. So these are political animals, Maya. They're involved in politics. John Roberts, head of the Supreme Court, the chief justice, okay, is very involved. And so listen, that, I, 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 I got to stop you, you man. That kid who sent I you that got- text. He's protecting this myth, go.
2: i got to interrupt this riff, man. I am not, I, I do not stand behind this kind of generalization and, and collapsing of, of, of vast differences between the United States Supreme Court and what's happening over there and the Illinois Supreme Court and the way that politics influences these justices at these very different court systems. Uh, I, I think we are better served by understanding the nuances here. And I also want to say right. that in it, as we dig into the way that politics influence uh, the decision, the justice's decision making process around who they appoint, it should, we should also bear in mind that this is only one aspect of what the court does. This is a, this is. This, this shouldn't, I don't think that um, we should assume that everything that's happening within the Supreme Court or that comes from these justices is somehow tainted and corrupt just because there's politics involved in who they appoint to these I, I, temporary I vacancies.
0: I don't say that at all. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll finish what I was getting at. There's a no. myth <laughs> that judges are somehow or other uh, in an exalted place and above politics. There's nothing wrong with being involved in politics. That's our system. I love politics. I vote in every election. I seriously consider who I'm going to vote for. I read in Justice Watch for judges, and then I do cheat sheets for people who are too lazy to read in Justice Watch. And I go, all right, here's who you should vote for. So I'm very involved with that. I just don't pretend that politics plays no role. I don't walk around the world being naive and saying, oh, the Supreme Court judges ruled eight to one to keep Donald Trump on the ballot because they had serious doubts uh, as to whether the 14th Amendment still applies. Uh, no. Well, OK, rule.
2: but so but oh, so that. just to bring it back to the Illinois Supreme Court, um, I, I think what sticks in my craw is yeah. the. If, if the process is political, like, let's just be open about it. Because. Yeah you know it my my basic question was this so because 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 the rules around these appointments are technically is that like when there's an open seat and the supreme court needs to make a temporary appointment until the voters choose the next judge to permanently you know or whatever hold that seat for the next term um any any, what are the qualifications for someone right it's like you have to be an attorney licensed to practice in the state of Illinois, you know, an American, a registered voter and, you know, whatever. There's like a, a checklist, right? So, but being an attorney, that's like the main qualification. Can any attorney apply to be considered for a temporary appointment? And what I learned is that not only were the ultimate people who were recommended and, and, and who were appointed, not random people off the street, Two of the three justices didn't even have a process where just a random attorney could apply, like even for show, even for show, even some just just a online application thing. So to her credit, uh, Chief Justice Mary Jane Tice, who, yeah, I, uh, I I dared to personally contact with this question. Uh, ultimately, when she when she got that to me in writing via the spokesman to explain her process, she outlined the steps from beginning to end about how, okay, when there's a vacancy and it's my turn to make a recommendation, I make an application available online for 30 days. I review all the applications personally. I have a 14 member committee make, you know, make a review. I interview people and just, and, and when I spoke to one of the people that she recommended for appointment, that appointee also told me that, yeah, when I met with her, she was telling me she was reviewing 80 applications. Like there, there, there seemed to be a relative openness about that, that like, okay, ultimately the appointee was someone who had been on the party's radar before. I'm not saying she's not qualified, but she was a person that went up for slating. She was uh, uh, the general counsel for Susanna Mendoza in the Illinois Comptroller's Office. Uh, but but she was in a stream of applicants with a lot of other people, and so one the other two justices. I mean, Joy Cunningham's uh, reasoning for not having a formal process with an online application and all that is that you know she's still uh, at herself a temporary appointee, and she's planning to formalize all this when you know if and when she gets elected. But I really didn't understand what uh, Justice Cott Neville's excuse was, and he never give he he, he never he did not the, Answer any of my questions about this. Uh, there is no way to apply for his consideration directly. The only statement I got uh, from him again via the spokesman is that he's working on retooling his process, and he'll let me know when he's finalized his pro- <laughs> his new process. But you know, it's um I, 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 it's you base i mean one one of these appointees was like in a running club with with Justice Joy Cunningham. Uh, one of them was in, this is not something uh, I could independently verify, so it didn't go in the story, but I guess I should qualify uh, to say this, that I heard a rumor that one of these appointees was like a school friend of a committeeman who has the ear of one of the justices. And that's how that person's name got in the mix. So, you know, it's like everything else in politics. It's like, you can't be nobody, nobody set.
0: Well, it's uh, as true, I guess, as it was back in the what would have been in the 1950s when Matt Abner McVeigh, a very young man, Abner McWay walked into uh, to the Eighth War Democratic Party office. Uh, and by the way, it's that's the millennials say, I find it very triggering uh, that that flax response to you. Uh, and tr- his attempt to try to intimidate you, and I'm gonna just say this the the flack. I've known Maya for a while. You're not going to intimidate Maya, Duke Massafo, okay? So don't even try, brother. All right, The
2: guy then had made made the mistake of uh, calling my editor David Kidwell, who spent some time in jail over journalistic principles years ago in Florida. Uh, and uh, you know, tried to chew him out about it and did not get a receptive audience. <laughs>
0: Man, come on,
2: man. Call
0: the boss. That's his. Come on, buddy. That's low. I'm even more triggered. Uh, <laughs> call boss! I'll show you, Maya. I'll call your boss. Um, all right. We'll close with this. I get your thoughts on this. This one, this one popped out from your story and you mentioned uh, you were talking about the influence uh, that, that being known in a judicial race has slated by the party uh, has being a politician has uh, in the past being Irish, being a prosecutor, the, the influence that has with the voters. One thing that struck me, Howard Brookens lost.
2: I and thought, listen, just as you were saying that, I was literally thinking about Howard Brookens. Yeah,
0: I know. Great minds think alike. Uh, yeah. And uh, um, so just a little background before Maya uh, riffs, Howard Brookings, for years, was the alderman of the 21st Ward. His father was a politician, a state rep, a very prominent name in Southside politics. Uh, he was an ally of uh, the mayors, uh, Rom and um, Daly before that. Uh, so what does it say, Maya, in your humble opinion, that a, a man was so well-known uh, among you know the sophisticated uh, electorate uh, whose name is in the community, would lose. Go ahead.
2: Well, you know, first of all, his name being known in the community is uh, I don't know. i hadn't I have not done an analysis to kind of like see ward by ward precinct by precinct where Howard Brookins did well. But that race that he was in, it was a three way race. And the other two candidates, there was a, a, a Black woman who ran against him who won ultimately, who was not somebody who was not a party insider, but she had good bar ratings, uh, career in private practice, was not a former prosecutor, had not worked for the government, and uh, was well qualified and, and, and well rated. And, you know, I think still a huge factor in judicial elections in the county remains, where does your name in the order on the ballot uh, women uh, get uh, do better with voters um, than men tend to do, and in this case, how the, there was a third candidate who was also a black man in that race, but who was uh, had had negative ratings, had run a bunch of times under different names, eventually changed his name to have an Irish last name. So this man had tried uh, in a lot of different ways, like th- three different times, to become a judge, um, and so. I don't. I haven't. Again, I haven't looked at the at the results to see how well he even did with voters. But you've got two two men and a woman and a woman. Uh, so the vote might the the vote that would have gone to the men potentially got split. Howard Brookins could have also been hurt by his reputation as a longtime alderman, um, as much as he might have been helped by having the Democratic Party endorsement and the ra- name recognition and the number one slot on the you know in on the ballot order. But um yeah, I mean I think that um I don't wanna you know say that it's only Lisa Taylor's qualifications that helped her beat Howard Brookins, but uh, I, I, you know it not everything I'm sure that the the, the entire reason that Howard Brookins lost did not have to do only with the fact that he's Howard Brookins.
0: Wow, um I'm just thinking about it. it may have to do with the fact that he's a man. And that 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 kind of under that undercuts the theme I'm having today that the voters are more sophisticated electorate that uh, that was a more sophisticated electorate than ever before. They're knowledgeable for having read uh, Injustice Watch uh, and studying it. Now, if if what you're saying is true, and there may be some truth to that, uh, it came down to uh, oh, this as a woman, two men. I'm voting for the woman.
2: Um, And it was close. Look, like she won with uh, 48.94% of the vote. And he got this is just in Chicago, uh, but it was a countywide race. But this was just in Chicago. In Chicago, she got 48.94%. And Howard got 42.17%. But this third guy, the one with who had changed his name a bunch of times got basically 9% of the vote. So that's 23,000 votes that could have otherwise gone to Howard Brookins. you know, so it was close, I think. It was a close election.
0: It's a close. And it's hard to say because if the other thing is uh, that there's just people who vote for judicial elections are smart enough to know, have an opinion about Howard Brookens. So it could be that those 9,000 votes that went to the other guy uh, could have gone uh, to uh, Judge Taylor because they just don't like Howard Brookens. You get what I'm right. saying? There's a lot of possibilities out there. So it's not a. Uh, a slam dunk that he would have gotten all 9,000 votes uh, had cool. the other guy not been in the race. Anyway, uh, what this all underscores is that this is very much a political process, uh, press press agent to the Supreme Court justice, uh, just, just so you realize this, this is very much a political process uh, and that you as voters have a huge say in it.
2: Nice. Which is why I encourage everyone uh, to look out for the March primary injustice watch judicial voter guide. So you can hashtag check your judges uh, when, when <laughs> you start voting in the March primary, um, the guide is going to be out online. Um, we're shooting to have it out next week. I think we're, we're, I don't have an exact date in front of me, but end of next week, I think is the is the is the anticipated launch uh, date early voting has already started but very few people vote this early on so we will also be printing thousands of copies of of the guide uh, as a as a as a print product as well and distributing it throughout the community so I encourage everyone to check out the guide and um, you can take it with you into the voting booth you can look at it on your phone as you vote and you should tell everybody you know about it too.
0: Yes. And uh, so as soon as it comes out, I'm sure Maya will uh, inform me and I'll uh, promote it uh, on the show. And to all my friends out there who have come to really love and appreciate my cheat sheets, don't worry. I know you're lazy. I will read it (laughs) because you're too lazy to read it. Uh, And I will continue my great tradition of cheat sheets and judicial election, a tradition, Maya, that goes back to the 90s. And helping Chicago decipher And this. for
2: those who make, who want to make their own decisions, they can go straight to InjusticeWatch.org to do that.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> well, I go to the middle. I go straight to the source. I urge everybody to do that. But I know there's just some people that are so lazy. Plus, it's your excuse to have conversations, be on the phone. So, Maya, it's a blast talking to you uh, and uh, made me kind of wish our good old day, uh, miss the good old days of First Tuesdays. But uh, as I said, it's on a hiatus. Uh, That's my official position, which means we can bring it back anytime. So uh, that's the deal. All right, Maya.
2: Yep. Good to see you as always.
0: All right. That's a great Maya. Duke Masif. I also want to thank producer Chris. He does an outstanding job. And I think you'll all agree with me when I say, hey, producer Chris, give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, Maya.
1: And remember, you can stay updated on all things Jorofsky and all things Chicago by heading to chicagoreader.com. And follow Ben on Instagram at Benny J show. And don't forget to like subscribe and follow the Ben Jarofsky show on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.